writing at earlier this week, I went to my favorite Mexican restaurant here in Wichita. It's called Abuelos. Anybody know about that restaurant? Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, a little bit different than some. It's one of those places you can go and eat just the chips and then walk away and you're full. And then the food comes. But on the way earlier this week, I saw a sign that sort of grabbed my attention. It's a sign. It's a very large sign. And it has two very large words on it. And, and the two very large words on it are indicative, I think, of some of, the, some of the mood, some of the feeling about the economic environment of the United States these days. And, and it's, a, it's an attempt on, on, from this advertisement, let's say, to, to sort of calm the fears of those of us who are seeking to invest our hard-earned money to make sure that it produces or yields something in return. And, and it's suggesting that if we will bank with them, then we will not experience the two words that are on the, on the marquee. And the words simply say, fear stinks. You ever seen that sign? Fear stinks. And, and that's, the, that's the design, that's the intent. If you, will, if you will put your money in their bank, you no longer have to be afraid of all the economic ups and downs that your money will be safe and secure. Now, is that reality? I ask you, is that reality? No. No bank can guarantee anything. But this morning, we're going to look at a guarantee that Jesus gives to us and to those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. It's a passage in Hebrews chapter 1, which is our, our passage that we've been using sort of the springboard this series entitled, Listen, Jesus is Speaking. And we must listen to the voice of God. And here we see that Christ is speaking to us as his disciples in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, in this text, we are going to see something really significant for us as believers. For example, fear stinks. I would agree. Fear stinks. And as I thought about that and thought about our study this morning, I, I, I sort of began to wrestle with this idea of fear, and I got to wondering how many people every night place their head on their pillow wondering if they were to die that very night, would they find themselves in heaven? For most of us, I think we've already settled that issue in this room this morning. It's, it's probably safe to say that, that, that if you're an unbeliever, if you're a seeker, if you're trying to find Christ, if you came this morning, you deserve a medal, and that act alone should get you into heaven. I'm just kidding. That's not reality. But, but most of us in here this morning are family. But I wonder how many times we've thought about those who put their head on their pillow late at night and wonder about their eternal destiny. There's something about having security. There's something about knowing about where you're headed and the guarantee that where you're headed has been sealed, it's been settled by the man that we know as Jesus and the man that we placed our faith and trust in him because he is not just a man, he is the Son of God, he is our Savior. And yet there are people all across this great city of Wichita and, and all over the great state of Kansas, all over the world, who do not know and do not possess the security that we have, the guarantee that we have, that if we were to die this very instant, we know where we would spend the rest of our lives. We had a, a memorial service here just last Friday of a beautiful lady that has passed on, Miss Jane. And she's gone on to be with the Lord. 
And it's great to know that in a service, a memorial service like that, you can know that you can tell the family that based upon her profession in Jesus, that this is not her final resting place. That one of these days the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and we will be forever with the Lord. It's great to know that. And yet there are those who do not have that guarantee. There are those who do not have that assurance. And I wonder what that's like to live in fear of your eternal destiny. To live in fear of, of not knowing that the sins that you have committed have been forgiven, completely, clean. You've been set free from the condemnation of that sin. For the Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And in the passage that we're going to be reading, we're going to see that we have such a guarantee. We have such a seal. In Hebrews chapter 1, stand with me and let's read together verse 1 through verse 4, the launching pad of our series entitled, Listen, in the words of Christ from the cross. We're going to be looking at Luke 23 in just a moment. But for right now, Hebrews verse 1, let's sort of recap that verse. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he, was, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. I said, who he appointed the heir of all things. Listen to that. Through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Who is he? He is the radiance of the glory of God. Not just that, but the exact imprint of his image. He is the spitting image of his heavenly Father. He is perfect in all ways as God is holy. Jesus Christ is holy, the perfect Lamb of God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And he, Christ, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Notice what it says next. After making purification of sins. After making purification of sins. There was an act. There was a, a, a deed. There was a, a thing that Christ needed to do in order for us then to have the propitiation of our sins, the purification of our sins. And he made that a reality because of his death on the cross. And after he died, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited as more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy that's ours to stand in honor of your word and to read from the word of the Lord together as a family. And we look around and we realize that there are a few of us here today because of the increment weather, and that's okay. But the reality is there are more of us in this room than there ever was in any of the early, early churches in the New Testament. And we know that where two or three are gathered, that you are present. And so we acknowledge your presence in this place of worship this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to come together on this Lord's Day and to worship you in song. And now as we worship you in truth, I pray that you would open our minds and hearts and convey into our lives this wonderful understanding of the total complexities of the crucifixion of Christ on the cross where our Savior, where Jesus, your Son, spotless and perfect in every way, 
became sin for us. He died in our place. Thank you for this marvelous and wonderful gift that we have and we possess through our trust and our faith and our belief in what Christ our Savior did on that cross. And God, I pray that you would just imprint that on our hearts and in our minds today so that we, in this most holy of weeks, in the week that that we're going to be spending as we anticipate Easter, that we might reflect upon this incredible gift of the sacrifice of your Son so that when we gather together on Easter, we'll be able to celebrate with joy the power of the gospel through the resurrected Lord. Enable me, Lord, to communicate freely exactly what you would have us to see today in this text. Bless us now as we open your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Wasn't it beautiful to see the kids walk down here and through the waves? I was kind of shocked at how many came. I'm not really sure how many children we'd have. Look like the younger you are, the more fearless you are. And they came. Kind of reminded us of when Jesus found himself in Jerusalem. And they waved palm branches at him, welcome him, welcoming him into their city. And they heralded him as their king. It would be a little less than a week later that that same city and many of the same people would find themselves standing in a mock court where Pilate would present Christ to them after a mock trial. After having been found guilty by the religious elite, they sort of passed him off to Pilate and Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with this Jesus. And so he put it to the people and he said, who do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus? And they yelled, Barabbas. And he said, then what would you have me do with this Christ, this Jesus? And they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. They wanted him dead. They wanted him to be crucified. Pilate gave in to their demands in order to avert some sort of catastrophic event that might cost him his leadership in the city of Jerusalem and over the nation of Israel. And he conceded and Christ was in quickly and promptly escorted from there with two others down what we call and we know today called the Via della Rosa, that place where Christ traveled to the execution place where the sentence would be done. And we're going to see this morning how Christ then begins that journey. And as he leaves that place in which he was being imprisoned to the place of execution, we learn earlier in Luke chapter 23 that, that Jesus, because for some reason of, of his weakness and his frailty due to all of the things that happened to him the previous night, is more than likely unable to bear and to carry his own cross. And we know that they selected a man named Simon of Cyrene who became a, a willing volunteer. I like the army. I need two volunteers, you and you. And he was volunteered or voluntold that he would carry the crossbeam of Christ to the place of execution. We're going to see now how Simon of Cyrene is walking now through these narrow streets of Jerusalem to the outer walls of Jerusalem to the place that awaited Jesus, the place of execution. I've been to Jerusalem, and some of you have too, and they're very narrow streets. 
And I can imagine and envision as Jesus is making his way to the place of execution, there are many who are no longer heralding him as their king, but they are mocking him, they are spitting on him, they are ridiculing him, they are defaming him, they are calling him names. And it was a, a, a difficult journey to make, seeming, I think, how just a couple of days earlier he was being heralded as their king. And finally, in the passage that I want us to look at this morning in Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 32, I want us now to see his crucifixion. For in his crucifixion, we then learn about the works and the words of Christ from the cross that are significant for us as we begin this morning, the most holy of all weeks. I think even more sacred than Christmas as we prepare for Easter. I think there are some denominations and some faiths that somehow get a a leg up on us a little bit. Uh, They have what they call Holy Week, and we Baptists have sort of backed off from that. But there's something to be said about those kinds of things in preparation, anticipation, and of the coming Easter and reminding ourselves, sure, he didn't stay on the cross, but in order to be raised from the dead, he had to hang on a cross and die on a cross. I think there's something significant about the fact that we need to be reminded from time to time of this beautiful narrative in which we see a beautiful description through the penmanship of Luke about what happened on that crucifixion day. And in these words and works that Christ did on the cross, we see his crucifixion in verse 32. The Bible says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. I think we have a tendency, I think, sometimes to to somehow imagine that Jesus was traveling uh, to the outer city walls, to the place of execution by himself, but Luke is very quick to help us and to remind us of the reality that there were two people who were also going to be crucified with Christ, and they were also in the procession as they were marching through and making their way through the narrow, very crowded streets of Jerusalem. Remember, it was very close to the festival that was going on, so there were tens of thousands of extra people in Jerusalem, and they are making their way to the place of execution, and it was almost like a circus. And there were two other people with Christ who were also carrying their crossbeams. And these three, now four, with Simon and Cyrene, are making their way as the soldiers are bursting through the crowd so that they can lead them to the place of execution. Verse 33, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, I've been there and it does look like a skull, I'm not sure if it's the exact side or the place, some of you have been to Jerusalem, they try to tell you Jesus stood here on this limestone and you kind of look at it and go, yeah, right, you know, it's a kind of a tourist thing. And you can somehow kind of imagine, and I've been to this place, and the side of the mountain does pretty much look like a skull, and that was the reason they called it the place of the skull, because the side of the mountain looked like the shape of a skull, but it's also called Golgotha, and it's familiar to many of us, called Calvary. And they marched through those crowded streets finally through the city wall into the place of execution called Calvary, called Golgotha, called the skull. Notice how few words Luke takes to describe the crucifixion. When they arrived, they crucified him. There they crucified him. That's all he says. And if you look at, at Matthew's narrative of this account, if you look at Mark's as well, you'll learn that there's very little of any talked about or describing the, the execution of Christ and how it was 
played out. I'm not really sure why that is there according to the scriptures. I would, I would have liked a little bit more detail in regard to how it took place, but it is simply in these four words. Luke says, when they were there, they crucified him. That's it. But it's not because it's not significant. It's not because it's unimportant. It's simply, I think, to draw our attention to the fact that Christ was crucified. We know by observation and our study, and we know by sitting through small groups, that the Romans were expert in crucifying people. They were the best of the best. They had, a, they had practiced it to the point to where it was an art. And there were those who were seen as very highly skilled in the art of crucifixion. And the art of crucifixion was, was designed to inflict as much pain as possible on the criminal that was to be executed. Not only to punish the criminal for the crime that they committed, but also to serve as an example to those who were witnessing, if you do what they did, this will happen to you. It was, a, it was to be used as a fear tactic to cause the people to be whipped into shape. He was crucified, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right, one on his left. He was crucified. We see his crucifixion. Secondly, we see his compassion. We saw not only his crucifixion, I want us to take a look at his compassion while he was hanging on the cross. We see something very, very much uh, almost unbelievable. You see in verse 34 why he's suspended up there. They have placed nails in both of his wrists and a nail through both of his feet. And he is sitting on a little stool and he's suspended up there. And while he's suspended up there and he's looking down at the mob and it's mostly an angry mob below. Hurling insults at him. Notice what he says. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Does that strike you as odd? I mean, he's looking at the people that have crucified him, that have, that have brought about his sentence and now executed that sentence, and the ones who are sitting there hurling insults at him, and he looks down upon them with incredible compassion, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That shocks me. Because the very people from the high priest to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to the, those who, who found him guilty from Pilate, now to the soldiers who had executed him, and now to those who are mocking him. He looks down at that crowd, and instead of being angry and bitter and hostile and mad, he looks at them and cries out to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That, that is amazing to me. And yet Jesus did that because that was central to his teaching, wasn't it? I mean, we've already seen on the last few Sunday mornings where Jesus just simply speaking forgiveness upon someone's sin, they were instantly forgiven and instantly cleansed and instantly healed. That's the power of the word of Christ. We've, we've studied that. But, but it's interesting now that as we see him speaking to the Father, asking the Father to forgive them, now to see that final revelation through the reality that Jesus is going to offer forgiveness to them by his very death on the cross. And Jesus is also, I think, giving to his disciples a future example. I mean, if you think about most of his teachings, most of his teachings were about forgiveness, were they not? Did not Jesus said to his disciples, did he not say to his disciples, love your enemies? Did he not say, forgive those 
who hurt you and who revile you and who hate you. And Christ continually, constantly spoke on the subject of forgiveness and constantly offered forgiveness to those who were undeserving. And yet, here we have the most undeserving, the most unrepented, the most hostile crowd that could have possibly ever deserved the judgment of God. And yet, Jesus is crying out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Or had they known in their heart, in their head, that I am who I claim that I am, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, they would not have done this. Surely, forgive them. And here we see Jesus in this incredible compassion as he's being crucified. We then move to his control in the next verse. We see in verse 35, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription that was placed over him saying, This is the king of the Jews. There are three groups of people that are mentioned here. There are, first of all, we see the spectators that are there. I mean, he describes the spectators, and, and it's only really with one sentence, but you don't need a lot to describe these spectators. And, and as I looked at that, I, I wondered, what were they there for? Why were they there? What's the purpose? You know why. You ever been on Kellogg and seen an accident on the other side of the road, and as you're passing by, you slow down? To check it out. Why does human nature do that? We want to experience it. We want to know what's going on. We, we want to see the, the gore and the guts and the blood and the stuff. We, we want to know. We're, we're curious. And I think there was a, a group of, of people who were there who were the spectators. And they were only there for one reason. To experience like a circus the death of these three people. And maybe in particular the death of this one who had just ridden through on a donkey in the streets of Jerusalem. And we, we heralded him as our king. And now look, I want to watch him die. I want to watch him die. I want to watch him bleed. I want to experience it. I think in that crowd, too, there were some some very unrighteous, very rebellious, very hostile people who more than likely were responsible for Christ being there, and they wanted to make sure that, that he did die. But we also see in the group, the Sanhedrin. These are the rulers. These are the, the, the up-and-ups. These are the, the, the religious elite who are there. And, and we have recorded as, as the, the mob, as the, the spectators are rebuking Jesus, as they're mocking Christ, we have a record of, of some of the crowd were mocking Christ. The Pharisees were also doing the same. I mean, it says there that, that they were sort of mocking his work and they were ridiculing his word. They were saying, hey, Jesus, you said you came to save people. Save yourself. <laughs> save yourself. Why, you can't even save yourself, much less anyone else. They were laughing. They were ridiculing. They were mocking his work, and they were mocking him and ridiculing his word in that they were saying, you said you were the Messiah. You said you were the Savior. You claimed to be the Son of God. What's up now, dude? Why don't you come on down? If you really believe that you are who you claim, call down some angels and wipe us out. Come on. And they were just laughing and mocking and making fun of Christ while he was suspended on the cross. Then there were the soldiers. 
who did the same thing. They began to mock and to ridicule and to laugh. To take that which was holy and defile it. They were wicked, evil voices that were coming from, the, from Satan himself and the depravity of man. As they were looking up, these soldiers, these unbelievers, these degenerate, were mocking him along with the crowd and along with the Sanhedrin. But notice they offered him wine. I know we're all Baptists in here, nobody drinks. But why did they offer him wine? I don't think they were trying to console him. I think they were trying to prolong his death because they wanted him to suffer as long as possible. And wine mingled with vinegar more than likely would prolong his life while he was suspended on the cross and inflict more pain on Jesus. And not only that, we noticed they gave him a title. The title itself was a mockery of his claim. Why, you claim to be the king of kings and the lord of lords and the ruler of Jerusalem? We'll we'll put a a plate up here, a plaque, just to ridicule all the words and all the work that you've done. And yet Jesus, not one time, not one time we have a record of Jesus ever giving back what he received. Did you notice that? Never reviled them, never rebuked them, never answered never took the time to address these people who were crucifying him and were cruel beyond beyond imagination. Next, we see then his commitment to the two on the cross. We see in verse 39, it says, one of the criminals who, who, who were hung began to rail at him. He began to rebuke. Jesus. He began to reject Christ. He, his response to Jesus was one of rejection. He was on the cross and he was there because of his own crime against the state and he was there because of his sin and he was hearing all of this that was going on and instead of defending Christ, he began to join in and he said, are you not the Christ? Well then if you are, save yourself and save us. It was a form of, of defiling that which is holy. He was ridiculing Jesus. He wasn't asking Jesus to save him, but it was a form of a ridicule. Notice it said he railed at him. Then notice what happens then. One who rejected him began then to offer a recognition of him. But the other rebuked him. The other one who was hanging on the cross, I don't know if it was one on the left or one on the right, but he then began to address his comments to the man who was actually railing at Jesus. And he says to him, do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he turns to Jesus and he says now to Jesus, he addresses his comments to Christ. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man, this other criminal on the cross, acknowledges his own sin. He acknowledges that there's going to be a judgment because of his sin. He is admitting his own sin, and he is admitting that the reason he's on the cross is because he is a sinner. And he knows that as a sinner that he is going to be a recipient of the judgment of God. And so as a result of that, he admits his sin, and he asks Christ as he turns to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, remember me. I believe you are the Savior. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe that you're unworthy of being on this cross. You've done nothing wrong. I have. You have not. And you're dying. I get it. Remember me 
You're going to be in your kingdom in heaven. Remember me. And notice how he's received. And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. Can you imagine the last moments of your life? Being sentenced for the crime that you know that you committed and you admit that you committed, you admit that you're sinful, you admit that Jesus Christ is the, the, the undeserving one, that he is dying not for his own sins but for the sins of the others. And this Jesus speaks words of life, forgiveness, peace, grace, and eternity into him. The load that he was carrying was not only the load of the cross, but it was a load that was in his heart of his own acknowledgement that I am sinful. And as a result of that, Jesus says to him, I'm going to tell you a truth, dude. Truly, listen, I'm going to give you a truth and you can, you can, you can tack a nail on this, man. It's, it's a truth. And, and this truth is this, that today, that's the time frame, here's the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the promise. You'll trust me and you have. Today, not tomorrow. And Jesus knew, and so did the man, that they would soon die on that cross. And he was giving this man a guarantee and assurance that when he died, he would be with Christ in paradise, in heaven. Notice then his committal after that. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour. That's 12 o'clock noon, by the way. And there was darkness over the whole Land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. While the sun's light failed. This is pre-scientific days. There was no way for him to scientifically explain for us today exactly what happened. Many believe that more than likely some sort of eclipse took place, but the sun disappeared from the face of the earth and it became dark. This is an apocalyptic event that takes place. It is, it is what Jesus spoke on his way to Calvary when he stops midstream, addresses the women who are weeping, who are falling behind. They're weeping for Christ and he turns to them and says, ladies, don't weep for me. Weep for yourself because there is going to come a time in which the judgment of God is not only going to fall on Israel, but it's going to fall upon the world. And you're going you're, you're gonna, to you're gonna need those tears because you're about to experience a time when no woman is going to want to give birth to any children because they don't want to bring children into the world. You know, sometimes I almost think we're getting close to that. It's an apocalyptic revelation here, an experience. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. There was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from, uh, from, from the people. And the moment that Christ died, that curtain was torn from top to bottom and it was burst open. Why? That curtain was symbolic that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went in there and offered sacrifice for the sins of the people. It, this is a beautiful truth. And now the curtain has been torn in two and the Holy of Holies has now been opened and now we have access to that atoning grace of God through the sacrifice of the one and his name is Jesus. He became the ultimate and final sacrifice. And then Jesus crying out in a loud voice. How loud? I think loud enough for everyone to hear. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He appeals to the Father once again, that intimate love relationship 
This is nothing new for Christ. He's been walking on planet earth for 33 and a half years. And he's been completely, totally committed to the Father and, and fulfilling and doing the purpose and the plan and that, that God sent him to do. And now in this final moment, this final breath, this final plea in his life, nothing's going to change. And having said this, he breathed his last breath. And Christ physically, literally died. He didn't just, you know, and go into some trance. He just didn't go into some coma. He literally, physically died. How do you know that? Because the centurion that's, that's on guard there, we're going to read him about him in a minute. He, he's a, a centurion. He, he's described as the one who has a hundred men over him. He is the guy who is responsible for making sure that, that the crucifixion is carried out according to Roman law to the nth degree. I mean, he's the guy that checks all the, the boxes, dots all the I's, and crosses all the T's, and he, he makes sure that those men that are under his command, they execute these three criminals exactly as they're supposed to be executed, and it is his responsibility to then to determine and to, to tell that the man that has been crucified, all three have in fact died. The crucifixion wasn't over until they were dead, and so he died, which leads us to his conquest next. Where we see in verse 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Here we have a soldier who recognizes everything that's happened. He, he connects the dots. He's a, he's a dot He's a daughter, you know, he's a, he's a fact checker. He crosses the, everything off. I mean, he's got a list and he crosses it off. And so this list maker, this list checker has been making a list in his head, watching what is going on from the very beginning in which he assumed command over these three that he was going to execute down at the prison. And he walked with them up to the cross. He saw all that took place. More than likely, he was present when they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. More likely, he was present as they insulted him on the way. He was there when he asked Simon Cyrene to carry the cross. He was there as Jesus received the nails in his, in his wrists and in his feet. He was there as the people were insulting him. He was there when he heard Jesus pray the prayers. He was there, and all of that, especially the darkness that now was covering the earth, stunned him, and he connected the dots, and he realized, notice, certainly this man was innocent. He recognized that this man had not committed any sin and the fact that the God that he called out was in fact real. And he proclaimed the only thing that needs to be proclaimed, praises to God. He praised God and he proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 48, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. Wow. Here are the spectators now. Notice their reaction. Before, what are they doing? Hurling insults at this Jesus, calling him names, ridiculing him, defaming him, mocking him, denying him the very work that he did and the words that he spoke. And now, all of a sudden, this darkness prevails and they understand this apocalyptic event that is taking place. And darkness normally in Scripture resembles the activity of the devil, doesn't it? And now the light of Jesus, the light of the Lord, has now died and it's gone out. And there's nothing but darkness over the earth. And they 
they then, I think, as you look at the text, they are saddened that this Jesus whom they have crucified is dead. But I think also there's a surety in their hearts that they've done something terribly wrong. They know. That's, that's it. I mean, they, they walk away. <laughs> All the way home. They're mourning for themselves because they know that what they have done, they have defied God and they have killed the Messiah. They have, de- they have killed someone who was divine or who was a prophet. And so as a result of this man coming from God, they have in fact defied God and they're well aware of that reality. But notice then the saints who are around. Verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. I don't believe these are any of the disciples, the 12. I don't believe they're any of the, of the, the outer perimeter of the disciples of Jesus. I think these, that, these acquaintances are being described here, I believe, uh, in the best study that I can assume. I wasn't there and no one else was there. But I, I believe they're the ones eventually that are going to be used by God to, to claim the body of Christ. There are some sympathizers among those who in the Sanhedrin and in the high courts, there are some who, who kind of didn't see Jesus as quite, you know, what the others saw. And I think these are the, the empathizers, the sympathizers with Jesus. They're the ones that, that God's going to use to help with the tomb and, and the release of the body and those kinds of things. And we see then also there are some women who are there uh, who have been following Jesus, it says, from Galilee. They've been with him a long time. And these are the ones that are going to ask to anoint his body and to care for him in the grave. They're going to be the ones. They're going to be the first to hear about his resurrection as they witness the empty tomb. They're at a distance. They're in the backdrop. Remember who was in the backdrop when we studied about Simon Peter a couple of months ago? Remember when Christ was arrested up in the garden and Simon Peter, unlike the others, followed at a distance? These these acquaintances and these women were at a distance. They were not close up, not to draw attention to themselves, for they were still a little bit preoccupied about what ha- may happen to them. And so we turn now to the conclusion of all of this. What does this mean to us? What does this say to us? How do we live now in light of the crucifixion? How do we live in light of the crucifixion? Here's, here's, here's some things I want us to just reflect upon as we close. In order for us to live in light of the crucifixion, especially during this Holy Week, I think we need to appreciate his sacrifice. And I think sometimes those of us who have been believers the longest, who have been acquainted with the Father through faith in the Son the longest, sometimes we get unappreciative. Somebody talks about his, his death and it's crucifixion and all the things. We just, yeah, I've heard that. There's no stirring. There's no moving. There's no, nothing that goes on within the heart and the mind and, and the life of the believer. And we're, if we're not careful, we, we will not appreciate the sacrifice that Christ made. And it's important that we constantly be reminded of the beautiful sacrifice that was, that was rendered for us on the cross of Calvary so that we could, we could have atonement for sin and be reconciled to the Father. How appreciative are you for his sacrifice? Really, search your heart. 
Are you as appreciative as you should be? Secondly, we need to affirm his forgiveness. I mean, if Jesus could look down at a crowd of people who are totally undeserving of forgiveness, and he still said, Father, forgive them, can he not forgive you? It's interesting that over the years, the decades in ministry, I run across people from time to time. And sometimes, I think in my own life, where we hear the voice of the enemy saying, you can't be forgiven for that. That thought that you have, you can't be forgiven for that. That sin is too big. That sin is too great. And yet 1 John 9, which is one of my favorite passages, as you well know, says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's nothing that he didn't die for on that cross that you have ever committed or would ever commit. Should we go on sinning so that grace can abound? By no means. And yet, the sinful, weak, fallen, carnal, depraved beings that we are, in spite of our best effort, we fall short of of living a completely perfect life as he was perfect, the exact replica of his father. And so we have a tendency, I think, to come into his presence And if we just confess, repent, there's reconciliation. I think we need to act courageously in a hostile world. Living in the light of the crucifixion helps us understand that as Christ was crucified, we too, like him, must die the same death. And there is no price that is too high, there's no sacrifice too great in which we are not willingly then to face. I mean, we live in a hostile world. We, we live in a world that's becoming more and more hostile toward Christianity. Right now, there are more people dying for their faith across the globe than ever in Christendom. And we've been spared somehow in the United States of America of these kinds of persecutions, but I'm here to tell you that it's coming. Now, we, we believe maybe on the West Coast and the East Coast where the crazies live, that's possible, but here we're in Kansas, man, and we're protected. I hate to tell you that it's getting harder here even in Kansas, even in Wichita, where you work. It's going to be harder to become a follower of Christ, and you're going to be tempted to, to, to cower to the persecutions and the hardships. But we must lay it all on the line, withholding nothing from him, as we adopt the sensitivity for the dying. I think there's, there's a sensitivity that we need to adopt for those that are dying. Christ, while he was on the cross, cared about a thief and his eternal destiny. Imagine that. And I wonder how sensitive we are to those who are dying without hope and without, without the eternal assurance of knowing Christ as their Savior. And we have family members and loved ones and neighbors and co-workers and friends and people we shop with and all that. And we engage day to day with them and we're not sensitive to their lostness and to their damnation that is sure to come because of the judgment of God upon their sin. We must then abandon our all for him as Jesus was willing to do that. He breathed his last breath and he said, into your hands I commit my spirit makes me think of that little song we sang when I was in, in, uh, in uh, Sunday school. He's got the whole world in his hands. Sing it with me. 
He's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother. In his hands, he's got you and me, sister. In his hands, he's got you and me, brother. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. Does he have you in his hand? Or is that just a song? Jesus said, into your hand, I give you my life. Have you given it all to him? More than likely not. Everything to him in his hand. For in his hand, there's safety. There's security. It's like the other day when I was getting out of the car and going to the, to the mall with our four grandchildren and Avery and Addie both as we're crossing the street. We hold hands. Why do they do that? Why do we do that? Keep them safe. So when it's in his hands, aren't we safe? And then lastly, we need to articulate the right confession. The confession of the soldier who gave praise to the Father for the Son. Does your life reflect a life of thanksgiving and praise? Because you recognize Jesus for who he is and what he's done in your life can't help but live a life of living worship. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m., and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www ibcwichita.com that's www.ibcwichita.com